Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On December 31st, 1879, Thomas Edison publicly displayed the first practical incandescent light bulb, lighting up the street in Menlo Park, New Jersey, turning the night into daytime and mesmerizing onlookers. This was a big shock for these spectators, just like something that happened in 1902 revolving around somebody that was born in this same year of Edison's public display. That person born in 1879 was Charles Follis who in 1902 became the first ever black American football player. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step up the DeLorean, the date is December 31st, and it is in the morning way back in 1879. Now we're at a local restaurant having breakfast at the table next to Thomas Edison, listening to him talk about the upcoming public showing of his incandescent light bulb. Now, this is going to be a famous day that sparks many more inventions that will ultimately change how people live and will view the world. Literally, I mean, at night, how you view the world. I mean, think about that. Wouldn't it be cool to sit down and be able to actually listen in to what he's talking about? I mean, I have no idea if he went to a restaurant. He probably didn't. He probably just had some breakfast or maybe he's that dude that doesn't even eat breakfast. I have no idea. But it's fun to think about. And again, this is a day that would ultimately change the world. Now, let's flash forward to 1902. Charles Follis. Like I said, Charles Follis was born in 1879, back when that day was changed on December 31st. Now, Charles Follis would play in an American football game for the Shelby Blues. And again, the reason why this is significant is because he is often referred to as the first black professional American football player. He was even given the nickname the Black Cyclone because he was just a cyclone on the field and just dominating and whirling around everybody. But think about that. He was so distinguished by the color of his skin that even the word black was into his nickname. You didn't have the white Gary out there flumbling around and tackling dudes around. No. He would have been, I don't know, Galloping Gary. Oh, later on, it's Galloping Ghost. But again, he was so distinguished by the color of his skin that the word black was in his nickname. And it must have been very difficult playing in those days. I mean, obviously, we know things that black men in football, sports, other things had to struggle through. I mean, this is less than a half of a century removed from the end of the Civil War and slavery in America. And even more than 50 years later, after Fowlis played for the Blues, we have possibly the greatest player to ever don a helmet and shoulder pads in the history of this sport, Jim Brown, basically struggled through the same exact type of things. I mean, we have it today, thankfully not as widespread as back in the 60s or even longer ago, but it's still out there. And we're going to get into that in this week's interview with senior ESPN writer Jason Reed, talking about his recently released book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, 
what it means for America. And just like how that light bulb being lit in Menlo Park, and although very cool, wasn't an event that singly by itself would change the world, there was the butterfly effect and all the things that came after it. Similar to how a black quarterback taking a snap for an NFL team really can mean more for America than just that particular snap, drop back, and throwing the ball for a black quarterback in the NFL. Again, we'll get into all of that in this week's episode with Jason Reed. But first, now if you like this show, I mean, even all the other shows in the Sports History Network, and you want to I don't know, show some love, maybe get some of your very own football history dude merchandise. Right now we have a t-shirt and a mug up there over on the Sports History Network's store, which is over at shopsportshistory.com. I mean, you can get my famous mug in the DeLorean, that little artwork logo that you see when you smash that little button so you can listen to the show. Put it on a t-shirt, put it on a coffee mug, enjoy the game while you're wearing your shirt and drinking from a coffee mug. But we're always adding more different type of products over there. So if you come back, maybe you'll find a hat. Maybe you'll find something else. And if you have something in particular you'd like to have us put the logo on so you can purchase it and wear it proudly, well, hit us up over on the contact page. We'll make sure that we get it up there for you. But for now, let's get into the interview with senior ESPN writer Jason Reed. With that being said, again... Give me the elevator pitch version of your career, maybe as a writer and your experiences that kind of led you to write this book here that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I'm an old newspaper guy. You know, I started out, uh, I went to journalism school, University of Southern California. And um, while I was in college, I worked at a daily newspaper in sports. I've, I've wanted to be a journalist as long as I could remember. Um, sports was something that I've, I've always enjoyed sports. I mean, I've, I've always had a passion for sports ever since I was a little kid. Um, I, I didn't know that I was necessarily going to go into sports writing always. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And while I was in college uh, at USC, I was I worked at a, a, a small daily newspaper um, in an area called uh, the South Bay of Los Angeles. And I got hooked on being a sports writer there, and I knew it was what I wanted for my career. And after I graduated from college, um, well, let me back up for a second. While I was in college, I I interned uh, at a couple of newspapers. In addition to working part-time in newspaper, I interned at the Dallas Morning News. But I worked uh, city side beat there. I worked. Uh, I was an intern in, in the metro section there. And I also worked um, – I also had an internship in sports at the LA Times while I was in college. So I, I kind of was straddling both worlds in the, in the, in the, in, in the newspaper world, so to speak. Sports and, you know, quote unquote hard news or, uh, metro city type news. And I ultimately decided that I, I did want to be a sports writer. And, uh, the LA, the LA Times hired me after I graduated. And I, I covered high school sports, you know, the traditional way. I, I worked my way up covering high schools and in colleges. And, um, I'd say my big break was, in 1997, um, I got put on the Los Angeles Dodgers beat. Um, and that was a really big beat at the paper. And I, I covered the Dodgers, um, I want to say for six or seven years. And that's really where, you know, I got my, my real indoctrination to what it was like covering a, a, a major professional sports team. Uh, so I did that. And then I, um, I, I covered college basketball at the LA Times also. I covered, uh, the NBA for a little while. Took a job then at the Washington Post covering uh, the Washington Redskins, as they were known at the time. I uh, did that. I was a beat writer, one of three beat writers on the beat. Uh, it's a really big beat in Washington. It's you know, it's the thing, or at least it used to be the thing. Not so much anymore, but uh, it used to be the thing. And then after that, after being a beat writer there for, I think, four years, three or four years, I was made a general columnist at the paper, a sports columnist. Uh, my focus was the team, but I was a general sports columnist. And um, I, I want to say I did that for two or three years. And then I left for ESPN to become a senior NFL writer. Um, or actually, I initially went to become an NFL columnist uh, for ESPN.com. And then I moved over when um, ESPN started uh, what was then called The Undefeated. Um, it, it, it's, it was, it's ESPN's site exploring the intersections of sports 
race and culture. Uh, it recently rebranded as Anscape. And so that was a very long-winded explanation of kind of my journey, but specifically about the, my reasons for writing the book. So back in um, the 2019-2020 NFL season, the NFL was commemorating its 100th season. And it seemed to me from some com- some from some conversations that I had that black quarterbacks who were you know, the most marginalized group in the NFL for most of NFL history – Suddenly, they seemed to be in a position of power where there were more superstar franchise black quarterbacks or guys who looked like they could become superstar franchise black quarterbacks than at any point during the previous, you know, 99 seasons that the NFL had had. So I went to my editors um, at The Undefeated at, e- at ESPN at the time, and I told them, you know, I really wanted to examine this because – it just seemed that with the juxtaposition of the NFL commemorating its 100th season and this marginalized group that suddenly seemed to be, you know, at the doorstep of doing something it had never done before, I wanted to follow that for the season. And my editors thought it was a good idea. And uh, they they basically mobilized a large group of reporters and editors and uh, video people to chronicle what we called the year of the black quarterback. And it actually turned out to be the year of the black quarterback because uh, Lamar Jackson, who was then going into his first season as a week one starter, he was in his second season, but it was his first season as a week one starter, became only the second quarterback in the history of the AP MVP voting to win the award unanimously. The other guy that won it unanimously as a quarterback was a guy named Tom Brady. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, who the previous year won the MVP award, well, that season, he led the Chiefs to their first Super Bowl championship in 50 years. Uh, he won the game's MVP award, the Super Bowl MVP award. And at then, at only 24, became the youngest player in NFL history to have a league MVP award, a Super Bowl MVP award, and a Super Bowl trophy. Kyler Murray, who was the number one overall pick coming into the season in the draft that year, uh, was voted the AP Offensive Rookie of the Year. Russell Wilson who then with the Seattle Seahawks had another fabulous season. Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys had a fabulous season. Deshaun Watson, who was then with the Houston Texans, had a fabulous season. So it truly was the year of the black quarterback in the NFL from a statistical standpoint, from from a, a victory standpoint. It, it, it was a year like any other for black quarterbacks in the NFL. And uh, true story, after I was uh, – as I was going to the airport, I was leaving my hotel, I got an Uber – And I get a phone call from somebody who says, hey, you know, I'm a literary agent. I've been following this series and I think there's a book here. And then when I got to the airport, another literary agent called me out of the blue and was like, hey, I think there's a book here. And I took that as a sign uh, that maybe there's a book here. So I went to to some people and uh, some publisher who told me, yeah, you know, we think there's a book here. And, you know. Two plus years, about 70 to 75 interviews, and about 88,000 words later, we have Rise of the Black Quarterback, what it means for America. Yeah, and it's this, so this show is like, a, it's, it's primarily, it's football history, and I want to take you back where I actually here, I'm going to show you right now, I don't know if you can see this little DeLorean, but yeah. you and I, we're, we're going to head back in time, we're going to go to a few, I guess we'll call it rapid rounds, uh, mostly like the, the far back time, but you kind of hit it right there, so the title of the book, uh, Rise of the Black Quarterback, and then the part, the tagline, what it means for America. Let's touch on that real quick before we go from a historical perspective. When we look at when we look at the quarterback, let's take it away from the football field for a second. Quarterback is a uniquely American leadership position. In corporate America, if you're leading a project for for your company, a key project, well, you're the quarterback of that project. You're you're the person that everybody's counting on to make this successful. If you're going for a medical procedure and it's something that you know is very serious, and there are multiple doctors who are working on you. The lead doctor is your quarterback. He's the one who has to get you through this difficult situation. When we think of quarterback, we think of the best among us. We think of the brightest. We think of the the leader. We think of the person around whom everyone else rallies and is inspired by. So when we look at the history of the NFL, black if black men were excluded from that position because they were considered to be too stupid, or too lazy, or just not leaders. Well, what does that say about 
America overall when the NFL came to dominate American culture the way it has. So the rise of the black quarterback in the NFL, what it means for America is, is that once people are given opportunities and the playing field is, is leveled, not completely level, but at least somewhat level, that anyone among us can rise up and contribute to the fabric of the greatest country in this world as a leader. So, you know, when I, when I think about the book and what I wanted to set out to do, I mean, at its core, Rise of the Black Quarterback, what it means for America, is a history book. It's, it's a, it's, it's a book about African American history. It's a book about NFL history. It's a book about the, the nation's history. And, and, you know, I really wanted people to come and look at, if, if, I wanted people to read the book, hopefully read the book and come to it with an open mind about maybe some things that they thought they understood, but maybe, you know, can gain some more understanding and understand the history of this struggle, which really is more than a hundred years in the making. Yeah. And speaking of that, so I mean, let's take that, that whirlwind tour that we were talking about the history. And, uh, there, so one of the names I guess that has been brought up on this show quite often for various reasons is Fritz Pollard. I mean, what's the significance there from your book? Oh my goodness. I mean, I was so fortunate because Fritz Pollard's grandson, Fritz Pollard III, gave me a ton of time for the book. And it was very helpful in understanding who his grandfather was. I, I, you know, I, you know, in researching the book and in, in reading books about Fritz Pollard and, and talking to people who knew about his life, like it's, it's, it's great when you get that context because yeah, I knew Fritz Pollard was at the ground floor of the NFL. He was the first African-American or black superstar in the NFL. He was the first head coach, black head coach in the NFL. He was the first quarterback in the NFL. I mean, he lined up at quarterback. It's not quarterback like we know quarterback today, obviously, but he was the first. I mean, so you talk about the the NFL is an overwhelmingly African-American league. Uh, I believe about 59% of NFL players uh, list themselves as, as being black. Um you know, the number has been as high as 70% a few years ago. And when you think about, well, okay, this overwhelmingly African-American league, well, Fritz Pollard was the first. He was the first black star in the league. And and he, his significance, you, you can't overstate what he means. I mean, he, he, he really was the one who on whose shoulders everyone else stands. And, you know, it, he did, he's not in the Hall of Fame as a quarterback. Um, and, and he, he, he was really a, a star running back. I mean, that's what, you know, and, and in those days, everybody played, you know, both ways, but, but, um, we can't talk about the history of the NFL, for, let alone the history of black players in the NFL or, or black people in the NFL. We can't talk about the history of the NFL if we don't, if we don't include Fritz Pollard in that conversation. Yeah, and like I said, he's been brought up uh, many times on this show because it's a you know a football history, and we go way back all the time. As and that's what we're going to do here more is focus on you know I'll call it pre eighties for lack of better terms. We'll get into anything else you want from there, but something that you know looking through the book that I didn't really realize. Uh, so Paul Brown, and you know he was a major major force for advancement of football in general. But I saw the story about John. Is it John Wooten? Yep. Is 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 that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. yeah. So, what is the significance of John Wooten there? Well, you know, you, you can't. You know, I just talked about we can't talk about the history of professional football without Fritz Pollard. We also can't talk about it without talking about Paul Brown. I mean, you know, one of the. I mean, when you talk about the the, the Mount Rushmore of NFL coaches, obviously, I mean, you know. It, Contemporary fans, you know, guys, people, fans today will obviously, you know, about Bill Belichick, you, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Noll, Tom Landry, Bill Parcells, uh, you know, Walsh. I mean, yeah, these are, these guys are obviously phenomenal great coaches. You know, Don Shula for, for an older generation. But Paul Brown, you talk about someone who really did so much that so many others followed. Um, Paul Brown, when, when he was, when he would relay the plays and to the quarterback and, and instructions, you know, how he wanted things to be done, 
he he had this system where he he used uh, these so-called messenger guards. So basically, what he would do is rotate rotating guards to give in, you know to to lay out his plans during the game uh, to to the quarterback. Um, and you know, you, you think about it now about headsets and communication and everything. But no, I mean, this was you know this was this was before all that stuff and. These messenger guards, they had to be smart. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't be someone who was just a guy on the offensive line who just, you know, basically all you could do is hit people and, you know, try to block without really understanding the nuances of what was going on, what, what your coach wanted to have explained. And, you know, there was a feeling for much of NFL history that black players were not smart enough to play the up the middle positions. The thinking man's positions, a center on the offensive line because center, you know, you got to make, help make line adjustments or middle linebacker on defense, the quote unquote quarterback of the defense because you're making, you're making the defensive calls traditionally anyway. Um, and so when John, when John Wooten was used as a messenger guard, that was, that was another, it was a step along the way of, of black players post reintegration. Um, gaining a measure of respect because the fact that Paul Brown would use John Wooten to be one of his messenger guards, that was significant because John Wooten's a black man and he's, and, and he, he was, there were a lot of very smart black players in the NFL, obviously, but the fact that someone of Paul Brown's stature Turned to John Wooten and said, "Okay, I trust you to do this." It was something that definitely resonated with other coaches around the league. You know, and that—that's kind of like so, so. Like you said, he trusts him, and it just when I think of the Browns, of course, everybody thinks of Jim Brown, right? That's from that era. That's the possibly the greatest player that ever lived, kind of thing. And I've had this conversation with some buddies at work that have had to go through African Americans have had to go through the struggles of. Basically being told their whole life, you're never going to be as good as the white man. And they've had to, essentially, you've, they've had to be a 12 just to be an 8, if that if that makes sense. So you have to work harder just to be average and just, I think of- Yeah, no, yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I get it, yeah. Yeah, and, and just imagine Jim Brown, and granted, I know this is more about the quarterbacks, but just going through, like, every single time you are got the rock- I can't imagine the kicks, the hits, the stuff, the everything. Like he's got extra, extra hit, and then on top of that, he's able to just be dominant above it. It's just, just pretty amazing, you know, to think about that. Well, you know, the, the, the thing about Jim Brown, um, you know, in, in talking to old timers for the book, there's a ton of stuff I, I I couldn't put in the book. I mean, a ton of you know, there were a ton of interviews, just great stuff that didn't fit in in you know talking about just quarterbacks. But, you know, I, I just remember, you know, anecdotes about Jim Brown and the things like the thing that, I mean, you know, he, he played with John, Wooten, um, or I should say John Wooten played with, with Jim Brown and, you know, they were you know good friends and, and Jim Brown was just, I, I'm, 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 I'm struggling to find the words here because, it's impossible for today's young football fans to understand how dominant this man was. I, I, I mean, you, you know, in terms of an athlete, look, Bo Jackson came along at the right time because, you know, he, he, he came along at a time when the, the, the media infrastructure in place was ready for someone of his incredible skills and gifts. Um, athletic skills and gifts. But, you know, I wasn't old enough to see Jim Brown play, but just the way he's talked about. And when you see the old films of, you know, him, you know, running over five, you know, tacklers and, and outrunning, you know, everybody in Enzo, um, he was just, uh, he was just different, you know, just a guy who you, 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 maybe you see one of those guys every couple of generations. You know, not even once a generation. So yeah, um, the things that he had to deal with, I mean, he was equipped to deal with it 
not just because of his his skills and his his athletic gifts, but his inner strength too. Because obviously he had to withstand. Yeah, I mean, so twenty eighteen Hall of Fame ceremony was the first one I had ever been to. He was he pulled up in a vehicle, and there's a lot of people. It was to walk into the uh, uh, the records hall. I can't remember what it was called maybe the Ralph Wilson Records Hall. But he gets out of the car. I didn't recognize necessarily who he was just from the jump. But all these people started gathering around, and he got up. And you know he's he has a hard time walking and everything. And I just the the applause and the grown people that were crying and the stuff that was said about how much of a hero he was. It like really struck home. That was the moment when I realized like what he meant to people beyond the transcending the game of football. That is kind of thing. Oh, I mean his impact on civil rights. Um, his outspokenness, you, you know, I mean, Jim Brown was one of the baddest men on the planet. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it, you know, and just reading, reading books about his life and the things that he, that he took on, especially, I mean, during that time for a black man to do the things he did off the field, you know, let, let alone the, 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 just the eye popping things he did on the field, but the things he did off the field. Yeah. Um, legendary status that was definitely earned yeah i mean i'm sorry for getting you knocked off the quarterback trail here that's what the book's about but i just I, no i think of cleveland browns that's what i think of in my head anyways and you know listening to my grandpa tell the stories and such but uh we'll get back to this i don't ever remember him talking about this this guy is this really his last name willie thrower i mean was that really his name yeah <laughs> Greatest name for a quarterback ever, Willie Thrower. You know, he plays at Michigan State. Um, you know, Michigan State, USC, there was there were a few schools, you know, traditionally white schools, that blacks were allowed to come and play quarterback at. USC under John McKay, um, and later John Robinson, um, and then, you know, down down the line, um, Larry, you know, Larry Smith as well. Um, yeah, Willie Thrower, he plays at Michigan State. Uh, you know, comes into the NFL. The Bears, he, he's he's with the Bears. He's a backup to George Blanda. You know, most people remember Blanda with the Oakland Raiders, but he was also with the uh, Chicago Bears in the NFL. George Hallis, one of the founders of the NFL, George Papa Bear Hallis, uh, he's coaching the team, his team. And he, um, Blanda, as the story goes, was not performing very well. Um, and George Hallis puts Willie Thrower in the game. You know, he completes a few passes and, you know, this, and this was unheard of. I mean, this is the early 1950s. Like, black players were out of the game. You know, there was a ban on black players from the end of the 33 season until, until the 46 season. So we're only talking, you know, seven years later. So to see a black man at quarterback, even for, you know, just a quick cup of coffee, it still was, you know, I can only imagine the shock in that stadium. But um, it, it was short lived, you know. He he, Willie Thrower is is gone from the NFL very quickly after that. But when you when you mark moments um, along a timeline, when you say, okay, this was a significant development, Willie Thrower getting in that game it was a significant development, even though he didn't have a long NFL career. You point to moments where, okay, you can see slowly progress starting to occur. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned like kind of like a cup of coffee type, uh, you know, maybe a couple of throws here, but then Marlon Briscoe. So then we're kind of transforming him in time. I mean, Denver Broncos. What significance do we have there? Well, Marlon Briscoe is the first modern quarterback, modern, excuse me, the first starting quarterback black man uh, in the modern era of major professional football in the United States. You know, Marlon, you know, I, we, Marlon just recently passed, and I, you know, I think about the time that he gave me and talking to me about his story. And you know, he's a he's a a quarterback at the University of Omaha, Nebraska, not the one at Lincoln, not, not the Huskers. It's Omaha, Nebraska. This is a smaller school. Um, is a black quarterback in the mid '60s to late '60s in co- in college, and again, you know, there was a few schools that did. You know, you you saw. Black quarterbacks it wasn't a common thing, though. But but clearly, though, Marlon understood that if he wanted to play in the pros, either in the old AFL or the NFL before the leagues merged, that he was not going to be able to play quarterback because that's 
black men in 1968 when Marlon was coming out of college were not being drafted to play quarterback in either league. Anyway, the Denver Broncos select Marlon in the 14th round of the old AFL draft. They select him as a cornerback, but he throws a wrench into their plans and he says, I won't sign unless you give me a tryout as a quarterback. Process was completely rigged. There was no way he was going to get the job, but but he performed well. Well, wouldn't you know it, the starter gets hurt. Uh, backups are ineffective. The team is struggling. It's like they're, you know, they, 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 they've lost the first couple of games. They throw Marlon in there because they don't have anybody else. Well, to the shock of management, Marlon plays really well. He winds up setting a Denver Broncos rookie record with 14 touchdown passes, finishes high in the NFL Rookie of the Year voting. You know, I mean, thinks he's going to be the quarterback moving forward. Goes home to Omaha to work on his degree, gets a phone call while they're having quarterback meetings here right now. And he's like, well, that's impossible. I'm the quarterback. Hops on a plane, goes back to Denver, finds out he's out. No other reason he's black. They just, you know, it's one thing to give him the job or let him let him compete for the job when the team was struggling and they had no one else. But to move forward with him, well, that was a bridge too far. He winds up forcing his release from the team, reinvents himself as a wide receiver, becomes a great wide receiver with the Buffalo Bills, one of the top wide receivers in the league. Then gets traded to the Dolphins, is on Shula's undefeated uh, Super Bowl winning team, wins a couple of Super Bowls with the Dolphins, never gets a chance to play quarterback again, though, despite his success. And, you know, I remember we were – we were sharing, a, we were having lunch over one of the interviews, and he says, and I said to him, you know, how did you get over that? Now, mind you, this is decades later, and he says to me, "You're assuming I did." Right? Yeah. I mean, again, that's so. I don't, I don't want to skip. That's the thing is like the book. We're gonna let the let the listener of the show read the book to get everybody because there's just so many other names and everything. But the 1978 draft, I. There's two names that pop out majority, and I, I'm trying. I'm really struggling with just not enough context of between the two quarterbacks of that draft that you talk about. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let, just tell the story about Doug Williams and Warren Moon. Yeah, you know this really shows the progress the league had made, but also how far the league still had to go. So the NFL started in 1920. A black man had never been taken in the first round of the NFL draft going into the 1970 NFL draft. So Doug Williams is this strong-armed, you know, picture-perfect, all the measurables uh, in terms of the height and everything. You know, he, he's playing a, a historically black college and university, Grambling, um, in, in Louisiana. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were then led by John McKay, the great USC coach, who took over the Buccaneers as they were an expansion team in the NFL, John McKay calls this young running backs coach on his staff into his office one day. And he says, look, I want you to go to Grambling and spend some time with this Doug Williams. I'm thinking of drafting him. Now, this was a, a major thing because, again, a black quarterback had never been taken in the first round NFL draft, and the Buccaneers had the number one overall pick. So he tells this young running backs coach on his staff, go there, talk to his coaches. Talk to his teachers, spend time with him, get to know him. And then I want you to file a report and I want you to tell me, hey, what's your recommendation here? So the young running backs coach goes to Grambling. He spends a ton of time with Doug Williams and, and his then wife. Uh, he spends a ton of time talking to Eddie Robinson, the legendary Grambling coach um, who coached Doug Williams. He really wanted to drill down on who this guy is on and off the field. He talks to Doug Williams' professors. And the young running backs coach files this glowing report. And at the end of the report, he says to John McKay, his head coach, like, outstanding football player, outstanding young man, you know, we should take this guy. Well, the young running back coach would go on to have a pretty decent career of his own. This guy named Joe Jackson Gibbs, who would wind up leading the uh, Washington Redskins to three Super Bowl titles. But at that point, he was a young running backs coach on the staff of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he recommended to John McKay that they draft Doug Williams. Well, it was it was still a bridge too far to draft Doug Williams number one overall. I mean, it, taking a black quarterback in the first round of NFL draft was a monumental shakeup, but you couldn't take him number one overall. So the Buccaneers traded back, and they wound up drafting Doug Williams. Now, meanwhile, at the same time, there's this quarterback at the University of Washington, this guy who's in the process of 
becoming the conference co-player of the year and leading Washington to a Rose Bowl victory. Well, he doesn't get drafted. You know, he's a black quarterback, Warren Moon. Um, he, he, he's shown that he, 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 he can be successful. I mean, he's the co-player of the year in a major conference, and he just doesn't get drafted. He winds up having to go to Canada, has a great career in Canada, because he, he goes to Canada. He didn't have to go to Canada, but he wanted to go to Canada so he could, so he could continue his career and show the NFL what, what mistake it made. Well, he goes to Canada, lights it up, you know, all the passing records. He, he wins championships. Anyway, winds up signing with the Houston Oilers, uh, free agent contract after several years. And after a rough start, he, he, there was a rough transition period. He winds up lighting it up in the NFL. He becomes a perennial pro bowler. He finishes high in the NFL MVP voting. He's, you know, racking up yards and touchdowns and wins, winds up becoming the only black quarterback enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He currently is the only one. But that 1978 draft showed us so much because, yes, you know, the, the, the Buccaneers took a major step for the NFL teams in selecting a black quarterback number one, you know, in the first round. But still, a great quarterback who would wind up being in the Pro Football Hall of Fame was not drafted. So, okay, maybe you didn't, maybe you said this in the, in the middle of this, but what was the biggest reason why they did take a chance on Doug Williams? But then how, how did, okay, yes, hindsight's twenty twenty. but how does Warren Moon just go undrafted? Like what was his knack? Well, black quarterbacks still weren't being drafted. I mean, it, 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 Doug Williams was an exception, not the rule. Uh, you know, and, and John McKay had had black quarterbacks at USC. So it was something where, you got to remember the, the Buccaneers were an expansion team. They were horrible. And I think for John McKay, it was a situation where, okay, this guy, Doug Williams just didn't have a good year. He, he finished like, I believe was third or uh, I, I believe he finished in the top five and I can look it up, um, in the Heisman voting that year. Now, now to do that from a historically black college university, it, I mean, he threw like something like 36 touchdown passes that year. I mean, it, it was like, like ridiculous numbers. So, the, the Buccaneers needed a quarterback. John McKay had a history of giving black quarterbacks opportunities. The team was horrible. I really think John McKay looked at it like, okay, can I afford to pass on him knowing how bad our situation is? So I think it was just a situation where John McKay was thinking outside the box in part because he had thought outside the box about this issue when he was at USC. So – you know, it was, but it was still the practice in the NFL not to draft black men to play quarterback. So it wasn't, it wasn't, the surprising thing wasn't that Warren Moon went undrafted. The surprising thing is that Doug Williams was drafted in the first round. So that's, that's the difference. I got you. It wasn't like, okay, this guy was drastically better than this other one. It's like, okay, there's only going to be one of the 30, no, it wasn't 32, but one of the teams no. are going to draft a black quarterback. It just happened to be him versus Warren Moon at the time. Well, you know, I don't. I wouldn't even go that far because, like, Doug Williams is what he did at Grambling. Like, he, his numbers were so impressive, and again, he he had all the things that you'd want. You know, the the the, the height, the big cannon arm, like, and and Warren Moon did too. But it was one of those situations where. John McKay decided to draft Doug Williams because he thought this guy can be a star and his race was not the overriding factor in his thinking. But all other NFL teams were still just not drafting black quarterbacks. So it wasn't like one black quarterback was going to be drafted. Did he? No, Doug – and we should say in the first round. It was that Doug Williams was going to be drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and everything else remained status quo. It just kind of was a perfect storm, too. Like you said, it was the court coach that had some experience and it was more comfortable. And then also the uh, the team was at expansion. It wasn't going to go to, well, God forbid, the Washington Redskins back then. But, yeah, it wasn't going to go to another team type of thing. Exactly. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, you as I kind of transferred forward, that was basically like from a historical perspective, the main thing I wanted to to get into, but like, like uh, in, in the, in the current stand, is there anything you want to make sure you talk about here on the show uh, after 78, before we get into some of the other questions? I mean, you know, no, I mean, 78 is a huge year uh, for, for all the reasons we've just discussed. Um, I, you know, I, I, one thing I, 
I, I probably need to mention is that where we really see progress made is in, you know, we, we see the same names. Doug Williams becoming the first black quarterback to start in the Super Bowl and win the game's MVP award. Washington crushes Denver, you know, 1987. Warren Moon comes into the NFL, early 90s, starts lighting it up, mid-90s. Uh, same thing, Randall Cunningham, the ultimate weapon in Philadelphia. Second-round draft pick out of the uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, gets in there and does things the NFL has never seen as a dual-threat quarterback. So the only other thing I'll mention is, is that late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, that's when we really see the movement in the NFL beginning to really substantively changing its thinking about black men at quarterback. Yeah, and then like you said, I mean, the 2019, the, the year of the black quarterback, and now as we move into any top 10 list, any whatever fa- whatever it is, fancy football, real-life quarterbacks, whatever it is, now it seems like that's less of a talking point. And how, how, how do you see the future? Say, okay, I always think about it. Like I watch documentaries and you're like, man, those people 2,000 years ago, they were crazy. I don't understand what they were doing. And I always wonder like what people are going to talk about us. You, you think in the future – we're not that far off where like this is not even like this book is like irrelevant like you might as well burn it because it didn't even matter anymore well you know i'll tell you um i i i, I tried to make this clear in, in every interview i've done there has never been a better time to be a black quarterback in the nfl these guys have you know you can look at the top 10 sal- salary list i think there are five black quarterbacks on it uh these guys have are, are the faces of, of many franchises they are adored by fans they have power that was once considered unfathomable to shape league events, but progress is not perfection. And, you know, we're still in an era where their Patrick Mahomes, the great quarterback of the Kansas city chiefs felt compelled to address some criticism, uh, some anonymous criticism of him and Lamar Jackson, two guys who have league MVP awards. And in Mahomes's case, you know, has a Super Bowl trophy and a Super Bowl MVP award. He felt compelled early in training camp, to address some anonymous criticism of him and Lamar Jackson. And what he said is, is that, look, you know, black quarterbacks, black quarterbacks have had to fight to get to where we are. And we've proven we deserve to be here all along. But even today, some of the criticism about us doesn't sound like it sounds like some people who don't look like us. So, you know, progress is great, but progress isn't perfection. And we're still in an era where, you know, there's, as, as Patrick Mahomes pointed out, there's some coded language about how black quarterbacks are evaluated and, 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 and even superstars. And, you know, what I like to tell people is we are in the era of the black quarterback. Like it, it is, it would not be surprising at all that if in five to 10 years, there were as many as 12, 16 superstar black quarterbacks in the NFL leading teams. And I, and I say that because, you know, let, let, let's look at the college ranks. Let's look at, 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 at the traditional powerhouses, the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the USC's, all led by superstar black quarterbacks. You know, I told you when we started, uh, we started talking to the, tonight that, um, I'm an old newspaper guy. I started covering high school sports and high school recruiting. And I remember when I was a young reporter, I would go to like all star camps, the elite quarterback camps. You wouldn't see a black face anywhere. Now you see black four or five star quarterbacks, you know, the elite recruits everywhere, even at the youth football level. So from youth football to high school football to college football, we are in the era of the black quarterback. And there's this pipeline that's coming from the lower levels that's just going to keep coming now. So, um, you know, I, I don't think the book will be a rel- I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm obviously biased. But I don't think the book will be will be irrelevant because the same issues that we were talking about, or the same issues that black people were talking about with regard to the NFL, you know, decades and decades ago, we're still talking about them now in a different manner. And things are much better. And the league is going to have more and more superstar black quarterbacks. But you always need to know your history to know where you're going. Yeah, that's something that I wanted to ask you about. So because you got so in-depth with learning the history and not necessarily uncovering because it's it's been there, but like the struggles that people have gone through, even if it's through the lens of maybe their children or their grandchildren. Like, do you remember a moment when you're writing the book and reliving where you just sat back and go, 
like either the tears came to your eyes or whatever is like think about what they really went through like does does something stick in your mind when i just asked that question well yeah i you know i went into this with an understanding that these pioneers faced a ton of racism i remember talking to fritz paulo the third though about his grandfather and just you know what the stories his grandfather would tell him about you know having to sneak in and out of the stadiums because you know, he was afraid, you know, they, they, they were worried about what was going to happen to him after the games were over. Uh, uh, you, you know, um, Ward Moon telling me about how his family, his wife and, and other family members, he wouldn't want them sitting in the stands because of, you know, this is when he's a successful quarterback with the Houston Oilers because of things people would say, just the racist things people would say. You know, Ward Moon telling me about when he was a senior at the University of Washington, how they boo him all the time. I mean, he's in the process of leading the team to get to the Rose Bowl. Um, Doug Williams, the, the things he would tell about the, the people in Tampa would say, or James, James Harris, the, the first quarterback, black quarterback to start in a playoff game in the Pro Bowl, just the amount of hate mail he got as a rookie with the Buffalo Bills. So yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many stories that, that made me sad. Um, you know, again, I, I I'm, I, I wasn't, I didn't come to this with naivete about the level of racism that these guys face. But when you hear the actual anecdotes, the actual stories, yeah, it's a lot. It's, 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 it's definitely a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I, I come to it from a little bit of a different perspective too, but thinking about stuff that when I read about it, it's just, man, I, I you just, you just don't understand. Cause I, I live in a different era and, and that kind of thing. And, and there's still things that go on today. It's, 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 I'm not going to try to, to hide from that either, but it's just, it just, even talking about it kind of makes me choke up and not understand. Like I don't have the right words to say kind of thing. So I, I could only imagine, um, you know, the book again, rise of the black quarterback, what it means for America, for the lesser of the show, where can they go to get it? And where can they learn more about your work? Well, as far as a book, they can get it wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Target.com, and also at your local bookstores. Support your local bookstores. That's a good thing to do. Um, as far as my work, uh, people can find my work at ESPN.com, um, Anscape.com, and they can follow me on Twitter at, at JReed, at J-R-E-I-D-E-S-P-N. And how about any last words of gridiron knowledge nuggets maybe through the lens of writing this book for the listener of the show yeah you know i mean i spent two years researching and reporting the book and it was a really fulfilling experience because i look i i grew up a, a new york giants fan and watching lawrence taylor and and phil sims and that for me and my brothers that got us hooked on football and you, you know when you when you talk to people who have played this game, who have coached this game, who have made this game their life, their lives, um, it, it really is a, a humbling experience when people trust you with personal stories. And, you know, there's so many people who helped me put this book together. I mean, you know, John Wooten, the, 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 Great NFL player, you know, offensive lineman who went on to become a you know a high-ranking black executive with the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, Doug Williams, a legendary quarterback, first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, um, and even you know the guys, the the, the contemporary stars. You know, uh, this book doesn't get written unless Patrick Mahomes gives me the time that he gave me, unless Kyler Murray gave me the time that they gave me. Uh, you, know, you know, guys like. Randall Cunningham, just to to sit and talk to these guys and 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 to gain perspective about the game. That quite frankly, you know, you can't you, you can't get as just as a reporter or or as a broadcaster. I mean, you, you you don't live what they live, and when they trust you with their stories, and when they and and you know, it so much makes more sense now. When I was wondering as a kid watching games, well, why did this happen? Why did that happen? So it, it was it, it was just a whole educational experience, and I couldn't be more grateful to these men who gave me so much time. There you go. A brief overview of Rise of the Black Quarterback, what it means for America. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation and were able to learn some things about an important topic that we have. And if you'd like to learn more about Jason Reed, you can find his work over at Anscape and ESPN. Of course, you can hit him up on the Sports History Network anytime, but make sure you grab a copy of his book at your local bookstore, on Amazon, or anywhere else you can find books. And before I let you go, don't forget about the store, shopsportshistory.com. Over there, you can go ahead and grab some official Sports History Network merchandise. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.